0: it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. For my fifth episode, I sat down with Georgia-based writer Jordan Rothacker to talk about his latest collection, Gristle, Weird Tales, published in 2019 by Stalking Horse Press. Rothacker is the author of three novels, The Pit and No Other Stories, and Wind Will Wash Away, and My Shadow Book by Ma Wem. Rothacker attended Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York before going on to receive a Master's in Religion and a PhD in Comparative Literature at the University of Georgia. His essays, fiction, poetry, book reviews, and interviews have appeared in The Believer, Heavy Feather Review, Guernica Magazine, Lit Hub, and many more. Good morning from this end. I guess it's afternoon there in Georgia, yeah.
1: Yes, good afternoon. Good morning to you.
0: Why do you write?
1: Um, I write because uh, I love it. It's it's fun. Um, I like uh, I like seeing the words there in print coming out of me. I like reading. I mean, I guess they're to me they're 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 utterly interconnected. With um, mm-hmm. I uh, I love reading. I love the art of language and text, and then when I and then it's like a, a secondary thrill when it's made by me at the same time. You know? Um so there's there's always that there. There's the uh there's the joy of of putting together words that haven't been together, or don't normally go together, and then seeing those sentences come out and the joy of a good sentence and then the joy of uh of narrative, you know, finding that unfolding as I, as I make it happen. Um, I mean, I always had this kind of thought too, and since I was younger, um, and then it turns out I read it in an interview that Toni Morrison said pretty much the same thing, but um, I write books and stories because I want to read them and they don't exist yet. So I have to put them back. Uh-huh. So then they do. Um, yeah. And then she said something very similar. So
0: Yeah. Write this. If, you, if there's a book you haven't read yet, write it or something to that effect. Um. Cool. Yeah. So, who are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, et cetera.
1: I'm a I'm a writer. Um, and it's it's a weird thing to to say, and it's something that I that I've it took a while to kind of feel confident and proud to say, though it's something that I've you know done since I was pretty young. Um, so I, you know I've, I like to wear that now and to feel good saying that I'm a I'm a writer from Long Island, from New York, outside the city. My parents were from from Brooklyn and Queens, and you get married, you move out to the island. I grew up in Long Island till I was 7 and then uh, my parents um you know took this big leap and moved my sister and I and the two of them to um to Spain so my father could um find a job doing uh, you know he was a linguist doing wow. translation work something with linguistics and we roved around for 4 months like like Roma gypsies and never never really settled anywhere, you know, went to a lot of job interviews, lived in France for a couple of weeks, but all over Spain, my mother's family's Spanish. Ultimately, he never either got a job or never took one. And um, they kind of came back to the States, the uh, tail between their legs, you know, we'd left this kind of, you know, what to me seemed like a picturesque, you know, upbringing Two parents, you know, bio parents in the house and an older sister and a cat in the yard. And, and that uh, kind of, you know, All changed, and we transient, and you know, and I don't know. That's really kind of I think part of my my independence and sense of self took off from there, Um, and then came back to the U.S., moved to Georgia. Couldn't really go back to New York after saying so long, suckers. We're we're taking Uh off uh, for Europe. After we got back to the states, moved to Georgia. My mother soon left my father, and then I was raised by a mother and uh, older sister um, for a bit until my sister moved out young, and then it was just kind of kind of me on my own with my mother working full time, and so. The gist of, of who I am is I uh, spent a lot of time alone as a kid <laughs> with books yeah. reading or, you know, coming up with stories myself. And um, that is where the, the meanness was was born.
0: I can relate to the spending a lot of time alone thing. So it sounds like language has been it was important to your father. It sounds like
1: he didn't read. It's funny. He didn't read fiction. And so it's uh, his cross <laughs> to bear that his son would become, you know, a novelist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So he never read any of my books, actually. He he just passed away last year, but um, uh. never read any of my books. Um, but uh, always, you know, was at all the, the book launches and bought the books and was, you know, really excited about them. I think he really respected fiction. Um, it's just kind of wasn't his thing. He, he often said he just didn't have the attention span for it. Um, but he, you know, read a great amount and was always, I mean... I grew up with a lot of books around and um but yeah the importance of language and communication um and even story even though he wasn't as into you know fictional narratives so that was really pushed into into me it's, it was just kind of inevitable
0: I I for the longest time was not a fiction reader and and I'm talking up till very recently and as a writer when I say that mm-hmm. I'm not really into fiction people of course give me shit about it but The podcast has helped me break the reading more fiction, and it's been quite fabulous. So today we're talking Mm -hmm. about your book, Gristle Weird Tales.
1: Mm -hmm. How -hmm.
0: would you describe it?
1: Part of part of describing it is that uh, the weird tales part. Um, Some of the stories fit into that that idea of weird tales from the early twentieth century. That uh, you know maybe the legacy of Poe and and Machen that you know. Lovecraft and others took on. Some fit that. And some are kind of weird in the way that my sense of weird and that things I don't particularly see much in uh, maybe the New Yorker fiction section or Mm -hmm. the kind of more MFA literary fiction that happens. Um, And so going along with the title, I kind of see this book as the fatty and fleshy parts of humanity caught in fiction by me. You know, some of the stories are, you know, sexual, some are philosophical, some are both, but they're all in some way, I feel a kind of kind of fleshy and this sense of, you know, the the human that might get left out a bit of, you know, the kind of quote unquote, highbrow literary fiction, you know, and that's not to disparage anything else. It's just kind of, and a lot of these are stories that I wrote when I was a good bit younger. And so they, um what I like is kind of, there is more of a, and though I was always reading and always studying and always practicing. A bit maybe of a a lost naivete about what I was drawn to in fiction yeah. um, that I've always kind of felt like I'm trying to get back to, and it was nice to have this book come out, you know, last year when most of it was written in my twenties. Um, maybe one or two stories are actually from my early thirties. The earliest story in here is from when I was nineteen. So wow. they're they're very formative. I know Thomas Pynchon did a book called Slow Learner, which is kind of a collection of his early stories that he put out. Later on when he was, you know, famous. And this kind of has that same kind of sense to me. Like this is the stories I, I don't think of as raw in the the writing. I mean they're clearly edited and, and things like that and very thought about, but they're raw in a sense of just kind of kind of many of them kind of came right out of me and didn't take that much uh too too much cerebral thought more more physical and passionate kind of writing yeah
0: when you said fleshy and it talked and and how a lot of the pieces talk about pieces of humanity that are often left out i mm-hmm. thought of a couple of the chapters the story augustus and anastasia mm-hmm. and then the story stan of changes mm-hmm. which i loved both of them but and i could really relate especially to stan of changes so the 38 year old guy mm-hmm and he's working in a kind of an office building and the new the new boss comes in or the new consultant he's worried that he's gonna lose his job and he worries mm-hmm. himself almost sick and then by the end of the story he actually gets kind of promoted i can relate to that set that sense of self-doubt and the anxiety mm-hmm. around that and then how it turns out completely opposite of what you thought it might. What were you trying to do with that story?
1: It does begin the first sentence saying that, you know, his his destiny was revealed out of a, a typo um in an intra-office memo. Yeah. Literally, it was a story that was born where I was at, at some event and there was a program. In the program, there was the same typo. Mm. That's in the story. It didn't fit anything else that's going on in the story, but there was this typo, and it was funny to me that the typo gave this person a title stand of changes yeah. instead of just capitalizing that makes it this kind of proper noun and title. And so it was a a reverse, you know, if um, if, if someone had this typo and it meant something to them, how would that come about? And so it was, while sitting there and paying attention, I was probably taking notes of whatever thing I was in. That's often where I get my best ideas. Yeah. Like when I'm at like an opera or a symphony <laughs> and I'm kind of stuck in one spot and I'm experiencing something really creative in front of me. And it's I'm usually jotting things down in the dark. I saw a little woman last week and I was jotting things down in my notebook, you know, in the dark yeah. while watching it because it was just such an amazing film, an amazing piece of art that it just kind of, you know, gets my brain surging. Yeah. The story was born out of that, really. It was born of a kind of like reverse engineering someone who and some of the other stories had that same kind of thing. Thing where like the last story finding a, a photo of kind of antique retro pornography in a bible what would that do to somebody you know yeah. um and so this story was the same way who would benefit the most from finding a typo like this right and so then it reversed engineered in my head for this this guy you know who is living maybe not the most outwardly exciting life and um that typo out of nowhere attached to a promotion could make him feel heroic yeah. and important so i mean that's 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 where it came from um i wasn't necessarily trying to do anything more than that other than maybe kind of like the the quirkiness of some of these stories where it's uh you know and life can be unexpectedly beautiful and and random in giving us moments of beauty.
0: Yeah, and it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> A lot of are.
1: <laughs> well, that's the hope. I mean, to, I I realized I think I I don't know if I said this in an interview or something but I told someone once that like if, if you don't wind up finding these stories funny, they could seem really pretentious. <laughs> and so the hope is that, you know, you're, you're getting it as you're reading them. And, and I hate that, like, when people say, like, well, you know, if you don't get it, you don't get it, you know, or, like, you have to get some kind of inside joke. But hopefully that humor comes through, because otherwise I'd just kind of probably seem pompous in these things. So <laughs> yeah. humor is also something I think of as a fleshy part of life that gets left out of maybe a lot of uh, highbrow literary fiction. Yeah.
0: Well, I did read your interview with Jacob Singer and entropy. And you kind of mm-hmm. talked about the romanticization of things we don't fully understand when mm-hmm. we're young. Yours was Henry Miller, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I mean, talk about someone who can kind of take anything and over romanticize it. I mean, that's you you almost couldn't describe Henry Miller's work as anything else right. but that, right? I mean, not a lot happens, yeah. you know.
0: I found it interesting because mine when I was eighteen, nineteen, uh one of my kind of muses was his counterpart on IS Nin. So mm-hmm. it was interesting to read, you know, from kind of the male <laughs> side mm-hmm. of that because I was, well, when I was 19, I was starting to uh, really deal with my sexuality and came out as a mm-hmm. lesbian. So I was super into Nin, nin mm-hmm. and her romantic and her journals. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was doing what she was doing by writing like a stream mm-hmm. of consciousness. And Can you talk about kind of how actually your story, the story Gristle, how does your story Gristle comment on, like, that youthful kind of over-romanticization of some literature?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a story that, it's semi-autobiographical, you know, um, the protagonist of Gristle, you know, the, the the me-ish, you know, character. And it, too, Gristle is kind of like uh, Augustus and Anastasia, where it has this, an I narrator, who then kind of switches over to talk about a very similar character to the I narrator, but in third person, Um, it's kind of, again, kind of a once removing, you know, a second, I mean, of course, an eye on the page is not me, even if it was nonfiction, you know, it's always a removal from the self. And this is, you know, that next level of like inception, Um, which, which is a, it's is a way of, you know, making it sound even more nostalgic creating this distance, but also a distance to that romanticism of youth you know and this, this mm. protagonist of Bristle is uh wants to be a writer wants to be um an artist uh, a bohemian henry miller's tropic of cancer has this kind of profound effect on this kid in this story he sees in in henry miller that you know that same kind of you know, love of life, you know, um, yeah. joie de vivre, you know, and this, this kind of bursting with just words that just keep pouring out of mm-hmm. him. And so, and he's kind of stuck in that same kind of connection to language, you know, and that, uh, channeling exuberance, you know, so the, the story does work its way around getting excited by things, even if you don't understand them, having experiences that maybe you don't entirely process, but they fit into what seem in literature, like profound experiences, yeah. you know, and it's, uh, I mean, I always had that problem, even when I was younger, uh, that I had a hard time doing things without thinking in my head how I was going to retell what was happening mm, to others. Uh-huh. Uh, always having this kind of narrative mind of uh, processing what's happening, but also thinking of, "Ooh, this is another story. This will make a good story. How do I tell this story while it's happening? Mm. And And, you know, at the same time, trying to be mindful and experience it. But that also part of my mindfulness was how to retell it, you know, how to quantify and package the experience and so this character in the story he's he's doing that i mean he wants to to get all the fat and fleshiness out of life Mm -hmm. the gristle he uh runs through it kind of you know with a kind of a scorched earth attitude you know uh you know to to hell with people's feelings and and how they respond to it he's getting good good art out of it it needs to be told in that kind of way of pushing it off of even the first person narrator Mm. Um, into the hopefully a sense that the author or even the first person narrator has learned from Mm -hmm. this and that, uh, you know, you can balance out life and still living life fully, but without being destructive to those around you can still make good art without having to be a reckless person, yeah. um, you know the 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 awful trap of quite often the privileged white male writer is the is my work good enough to excuse my behavior, you know that's I I keep picturing a New Yorker cartoon of that, yeah. you know, um, some drunk husband on a, on his the front door and the wife's letting him in in the middle of the night, maybe the cabbie's helping him in, and he's saying, I think my work is good enough to excuse this behavior. Mm,
0: that's <laughs> um, yeah, that's,
1: and whether, whether that exists already, it's yeah, and that that kind of stems and and hopefully by the way the story is written, there's some indication that I've learned from that at least by now, if not, um, when I was younger. But Gristle was written in my I think my my mid to late twenties. Okay. Um, where I was actually still still you know looking back and trying to process college and that kind of in a being away at school and in a new place and being around other creative people and trying to, you know, absorb all this art and process it and create my own. Um, and you know, not worrying too much about reality because you're not. You're in a bubble of a dorm. Okay. You know, you're in a bubble of a, a college campus, in a bubble of not much responsibility.
0: Yeah, I love that image of. <laughs> how you mentioned the you know the privileged white male. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> my work's good enough to excuse my behavior. <laughs> like I just think of the so many, especially alcoholic literary greats. I mean, in in a way, that was me. I'll I'll just be forthright i'm a recovering alcoholic Mm -hmm. so i've got a nice history of poor behavior Mm -hmm. and i remember at you know 1920 it was that's all it was was like drinking wine smoking cigarettes writing poetry writing Mm -hmm. i like in gristle that last bit where the protagonist asks his friend remember mm-hmm. you were giving mm-hmm. me quotes for the postmodernist modernist post. And you said, gristle is the only thing worth remembering. That's how he remembered it. And then in a funny little twist, the friend was like, no, I said the only word worth me- remembering. That was funny and interesting to me because a, I think it further reflects that youthful kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you make something so big and important out of one little sentence or mm-hmm. word. And then, Because I'm constantly mining memories because I'm writing a memoir. I'll find out, like you know, the thing I thought my mom said 20 years ago, or the thing, you know, whatever was remembered completely different by that other person. Yet the meaning remains the same. Like it was a profound moment for me Mm -hmm. in my past that stuck with me, (laughs) and really, I may have misinterpreted it. It's.
1: It's interesting and that doesn't change at all like the impact on you right, right? I mean, exactly i was just reading um i was reading something with uh john Edgar weidman recently a writer i really uh love and respect and you know he had said something about he's he's published a lot of uh fiction novels and long memoir non-fiction he comes to both with the sense that uh all stories are true you know and and, and on some level i agree with that you know that there's a there's a truth to myth even you know my my master's in religion and um I'm really influenced by kind of myth and the idea of sacred texts and things like that, um, myths from from all over. This idea that, um, and it's killing me that I can't think of who said it. I don't know if it was Eliada, but the idea that a myth is a story where all the parts are false, but the the meaning is true. Yeah. And I'm really butchering that <laughs> well, in the no, yeah. you know, and that, yeah, it's, it's essence is true, but the, the parts are all fiction. And that, um, you know, the way our memory works, you know, memoir is a very similar process to writing fiction mm-hmm. you know right there's a, a vision in your head there's an idea in your head you're trying to get it out into the paper you're trying to describe what you see in here in your head the memoir we hopefully were remembering those things and not making right. them up but there's still it's still taking what's in your head and putting it down the same writing process that sense of yeah i mean you you might have some memory from childhood that is not ex- how it happened at all or, or just maybe not exactly how it happened and, and the idea that like you can still be profoundly affected by mm-hmm. it you know um I mean, I guess it's a lot of. I think a lot of people now being accountable for their language, where we talk about intent versus impact. Also, right? I mean, so um, you might have the impact from something from childhood that, of course, the maybe intent wasn't there, or even the actuality wasn't there, but the impact's still the same. Exactly. You're still affected. Yeah it's real to That's you right. and and not to get into like anything like neurolinguistic program or anything but the, the fact is that we we can change these narratives in our head a lot you know like you're given new information and then you wind up kind of rewriting the past by changing the story you have in your head from what someone has added to the story yeah. so that makes it very difficult i've never written memoir and I, I think of one day i should it would probably not be uh maybe the most pleasant thing for. Uh, um, I don't know my mother. I mean, we haven't spoken in like six years, and so uh, a memoir of my childhood would not be. The, but we don't all talk anyway right now. So, but yeah, that that memoir process is something I've been keeping at bay for for some yeah, time. Yeah,
0: that was that was the same hard part for me was my yeah. mother. So. Mm-hmm she begged and begged to read the manuscript so many times I was like no 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 and then I finally let her read it and and like a lot of memoirs foretold like the people you think are going to be mad or hurt are going to have the exact opposite reaction and and the people you think would never you know even have a feeling about it are the ones that you're going to be surprised they were hurt or something and that was true Mm -hmm. You bring up your masters in religion, because, well, and you said some some of this is semi autobiographical in your book. I could relate. I've always been a bit of a seeker spiritually, and growing up, and well into my twenties. Um, but I had a load of negative experiences with different religions. I was wondering um, if you have. Mm-hmm. And then I also think I read somewhere that you call yourself a hardline agnostic. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. Why?
1: In my experience, what I've seen, people who've had negative experiences usually gravitate more to towards an atheism, which I mean, I think Heidegger said atheism is a raising of hands against God. Um, I often see a lot of atheists who are actually just kind of. Oppositional yeah, theists, yep. or just um, recovering theists, or you know, who yep. who kind of hate a particular church or whatever that they left. Um, hardline agnostic is, uh, I feel pretty solidly. Don't know, don't care. You know, it is is the crasser way to say it. Um, I've got no. Definitive belief or knowledge of a metaphysical or transcendent reality. I'm open to the possibility. None of the systems or cosmologies yeah. that I've studied, and I've studied most, you know, around the the world in time, seem likely or plausible. But I, but I, I kind of really appreciate them all, you know, on like a narrative and artistic and and just kind of respective belief level. I kind of think all religions are kind of equally yeah. beautiful and equally ridiculous oh. in, in their own. Their own ways. So that's the hardline agnostic that like I don't see agnostic right. as like fence sitting or anything like that. I uh, I have no empirical evidence um and I I say with no definitive, you know, stance that there isn't a god or gods and but I also have no right. total evidence or proof that there is. So u- ultimately it doesn't affect my daily life, you know, <laughs> like drive around, do do the things I do and um whether or not there is a god or gods doesn't change you uh-huh. know, the, the brass tacks of my existence my my parents were my father was a pretty kind of conservative roman catholic and my mother was uh, a very new agey seeker probably still is you know where i was kind of grew up um With her, me tagging along with everything she went to, all the different uh, groups or ashrams um, or covens and everything that she experienced, I kind of tag along and listened and it all kind of added into my worldview. And each of them seemed pretty neat and interesting and none of them seemed exactly correct to me. I wound up uh, really kind of learning a lot and liking a lot and uh, wanting to keep studying religions, but never wanting to be like a worshiper or believer I'm a lot closer to, to uh, a no gods, no masters yeah. kind of uh, anarchist uh, so politics, spiritual your love belief. of
0: yeah. story and myth account for kind of your job to religion or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> in the most, um, and not to disparage anyone else's belief, but really in the most uh, material way to look at religions, I see them as kind of the ultimate art form, right? I mean, it's, it. You know, a text, a religious sacred text, can lead how people not only believe and see the world, but also lead people to get things to live and die for. It creates a full cosmological worldview. You know, most religions try to answer all the major <laughs> questions of of you know humans. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty amazing <laughs> it's enterprise. Got me thinking you about know. your
0: story, Winter Solstice, which was particularly beautiful to me, mm-hmm. and it felt true. I wonder oh, if really? it's true. Was it true? <laughs>
1: Um, I mean, I wrote this when I was about 22. My father mm-hmm. died just last year, you know, when I was uh, 41. So uh, no, there's nothing true about it. I literally was driving to work one morning and saw a squirrel on the side of the road barrowing its, its, you know, acorn. And I thought of, uh, you know, what they do after you know a frost or a thaw um and it's, it's the same kind of thing where that image just kind of went backwards out of my head reverse engineered what would lead someone to this to identifying with a squirrel even in that sense and and the whole thing just you know came in my head as i was uh driving and then i got to work at the vegetarian times magazine i was an editorial assistant at the time and uh um you know, between other tasks throughout the day, I uh, I banged out that short story and really liked it. It was, it was, really, it was a really weird feeling. <laughs> yeah. I just wrote a Christmas story. I didn't right. really expect to write a Christmas story, which is kind of an oh, anti-Christopher's I story love it. Um, you before, should so.
0: kind of summarize it for listeners real quick.
1: The funny thing is I, I kind of worked myself into a weird spot uh, at the the book launch of, of Gristle. I had, you know, a couple things planned on. I thought of reading this because I think it's a, a sweet story. And this is four months after my father had passed. And, and for some reason I'm like, let's read the story about a guy whose father dies and um kind of choking back tears while, uh, while reading and had to stop for a second, you know, and everyone was kind of held and I, I was able to finish it, but uh, it's a story about a a young guy in college. He's home from college and he's, he's looking out the window to a nativity scene at the beginning in their front yard. And there's no baby Jesus in the nativity scene. And then, uh, he starts thinking of growing up and watching his parents put the nativity scene together in the front yard at Christmas time. And um, it becomes clear throughout the story that his um, father has passed, that the mother is now alone. You know, he's home visiting her from college. And it's a pretty somber situation of the house And that he thinks of how he would ask his father, who was a uh, scholar of religion and a you know non-Christian, and he would ask him about um, why he put this nativity scene together with his um, with his wife, with the kid's mother. And the father, you know, would explain to him that, you know, when Jesus was most likely born around April, probably around Passover, and that, you know, this is winter solstice or Saturnalia, and, you know, the origins of, you know, December 25th of the holiday. Ultimately, the father, you know, when asked why he did this, engaged in this practice that he didn't have a belief in, the father told him he did it for her. He did it for, you know, the love of his life, or the, um, the boy's mother. The son, you know, is you know had watched her put this together alone, and um, it's kind of a, I guess, a cold, sad feeling that he doesn't help her, you know. But um, you know, then there's the kind of twist, the kicker by the end of it that uh, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't give away, but it's uh, a. <laughs> it is definitely a weird tale by the end. And uh, um, Heavy Feather Review published it um, last year in two thousand eighteen, like on Christmas Eve, and then I reposted it again on social media this this year, um, and I just kind of put it out there, like. This is from my book of weird tales coming out soon. Maybe uh, <laughs> I love you'll, you'll get an idea of what I mean by weird tales. And that one kind of <laughs> certainly is. Uh, you know, there's no like sci fi or horror kind of weirdness to it, um, but it's a really, right. an odd little tale.
0: The parables kind of earlier on in the Mm -hmm. book, Mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, they felt pretty biblical to me just, I Mm -hmm. mean, because, you know, Jesus spoke in parables all the time Mm -hmm. and I'm a sense maker. I'm super analytical. I wanted so badly to figure out the (laughs) meaning of your parables, but I couldn't. (laughs) 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 Is that intentional on your part or am I just a dummy?
1: (laughs) Um, No, 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 you're not. I mean, part of that to me, I guess, um, parable or in a way, Especially the first three, maybe the parable four has its own moral tucked into the end of it. Um, the first, mm-hmm. and so yeah, Ars Morandi, parable fourth, but the parables three, there's a sense kind of more like a Zen Cohen kind of parable. You know, a parable is a story that's supposed to teach a lesson, mm-hmm. and a Zen Cohen is more of a, um, there's no real answer to it. It's about the practice of thinking about it, you know, kind of bending mm-hmm. your mind around it. And so I think there's, there's maybe a little more of, of that, but they, I guess parables kind of in the style that here's this thing that's a weird little tale that just kind of floats there, on your tongue, on the front of your mind, um, makes you go, "Huh." I don't entirely get that, but it makes sense. You know, yeah. that's the sensation that you go, "I don't entirely get it, but it makes sense." I mean the. The endings yeah. all kind of seem inevitable. The third one about the little girl who wants a red tricycle for Christmas. Yeah. And I read that out loud at a at a book launch. A friend of mine came up after and she said that story felt like a, a punch to the gut at the end of it. And so yeah. um though I don't like making people feel Bad that's certainly a reaction that I think is uh equal to the to the text it lives up to it that it, it definitely is kind of a gut punch at the end,
0: yeah, um, but it's still in a way beautiful it was it was like what the come on <laughs> but then it was like, but he put the, the penny in there I don't know there' was something beautiful about it. it is weird
1: <laughs> there's um the the three parables and then the story Dr. Mame and a few others. Originally, when I was in college, I wanted to put together a collection of short stories called The Impotence and the Ugliness. I was hooked on things like Sound of the Fury, Sense and Sensibility, mm. Pride and Prejudice. I felt like I needed a title like that. Uh-huh. and The the stories all kind of had that same sense of um, powerlessness or kind of like the second parable, particularly having power, but not understanding it, um, but then feeling powerless oh. in ways where you want to have power, but that aren't there for you. I mean, that one really does have that kind of moral that the sense of I can do this thing really well, but I don't particularly like it. And people expect it from me because I'm good at it. But just because I'm good at it doesn't mean I should do it. You know, it's what I want to yes. do. And the things that I really want to do, I feel totally stuck and powerless that I can't do. And so that, I guess that's also awesome. Now saying that out loud, it sounds like a very teenage feeling, right? I mean, that kind of um, liminal maturity. I can stay out later or I can vote at 18 or I can drink at 21. I can do these things. But I still, maybe I'm not entirely ready to, or maybe I, you know, um, having bits of maturity or wisdom, but you don't know how to yield them, have a knowledge, but you don't really know what to do with it. Um, I mean, I I was a bit of a precocious child and my mother would, you know, sometimes tell me things. She'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, I know that. And she would snap back and she's like, yeah, you know it, but you're not doing it. And I was like, well, just, (laughs) yeah, certainly just because I (laughs) know something doesn't mean I have the discipline to do it or I can enact on it. Um, knowledge yeah. only gets you so far. And I guess that was a big coming of age type thing. And I think these stories kind of convey that, um, that knowledge versus reality maybe are, are different things. Yeah. Knowledge versus action. Yeah.
0: I loved Dr. Main.
1: <laughs> that one is also, um, yeah, I mean, it, it began literally from a an article I saw in a science magazine about Pseudoceros bifurcus, these flatworms that, uh, that penis fence,
0: yeah, and uh,
1: and again, it was the this would make a neat story.
0: <laughs> who, would,
1: <laughs> who would benefit from this, or who would be affected by this? And then it's kind of that again, reverse engineering an idea. You know, how would we get to this as a punchline of a of a yeah. story? And it's also the same kind of thing: this impotence and ugliness. You know, of someone who is has these different powers and abilities, or just strengths and intelligences, but also might be feels incomplete. Um, that that isn't enough. And yeah. kind of like some of the other stories, um, it's a story from my, like I wrote this also like around 19 or 20. That shows... Dr. May. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I wrote it in college. Well
0: done. Oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> and I, but I had that same kind of uh, feeling of uh, when putting these together in this collection for publication like a year ago, looking at them, I realized, wow, I was really into power and gender dynamics <laughs> without think of it in those terms, I mean, I took a lot of, read a lot of women writers in college and, you know, it's just kind of always, you know, being raised by a single mother and an older sister. And my, my feminine side was always well cultivated. Um, and, you know, it was, it was inevitable. It was always around me. Reading those stories at, a, at an older age, I realized that it was certainly a preoccupation without me kind of consciously saying, I'm going to sit down and write a story about gender dynamics and power. And right. It was just the ideas I would have and Sometimes it's a male protagonist. Sometimes it's a female protagonist. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about who are some of the women writers that were kind of, you know, formative for you, or who who do you read um, now? Well,
1: at the time when I was a, a teenager, um, Sylvia Plath was pretty pretty big um, for me. I'd read The Bell Jar um, just kind of randomly as a teenager, and then I had a girlfriend who was was really into her, and then got me into reading the poetry, not just um, you know that that one novel and her a collection was reintroduced called Johnny panic in the Bible of dreams that came back out um, of Sylvia Plath short stories and kind of memoir and, and prose stuff that happened, came back out when, in the mid nineties when I was a teenager and really loved that um, watching, you know, what her mind could do with uh, short stories. I mean, I've got a framed portrait of, you know, Sylvia on the nice. on my desk right now. And she's, uh, and she's awesome. I mean, someone who, I think she had, what, 70 rejections from Mademoiselle before they ever published one of her, like, yeah, um, yeah. so she's, she she looks at me in this kind of, uh, um, you know, get back to work kind of look, you know, on my desk. So she was, she was a biggie. Who else my teen years? Annie Sprinkle, you know, just talk about gender politics, um, you know, when I was, post-porn modernism by her was a, was a pretty big thing introduced by a friend, uh, Kathy Acker, they were pretty big in my my teen years recently, uh, thanks to so many like reissues, um, Leonor Carrington, uh, loving her, Anna Kavan, her short stories, her novel ice, pretty wonderful. Um, Ann Quinn, I've been having, and I like Virginia Woolf a good bit when I was a teenager, I've been kind of coming back to her recently. I've had the idea of, um, next time I can teach like a 20th century English or English and American lit class to do it. Just women, you know, mm. cause some of these things are done just men and throw in like one woman to do one, just women, you know, Virginia Woolf. um oh Flannery O'Connor was huge for me as it's, it's great because I'm teaching her right now um in a couple of different classes, but um her short stories particularly were a huge influence i mean i really I wrote a lot of short stories as a teenager. I was kind of scared of the commitment of a of a novel and mm. um I could kind of work um in the short form easier in the sense of kind of you know laboring over each word and each sentence and then I've only written three pages, but it feels, you know, complete. Um, So Flannery O'Connor was, was huge in that regard. Zora Neale Hurston, um, especially her, her folklore and kind of like myth fieldwork thing. Um, and, and when I was doing my religion masters, I took a class in women's spirituality and that opened me up to, um, Alice Walker was amazing yeah. in that. I uh, guess yeah, Starhawk, you know, the kind of people that yeah. my mother was, was also really into. Yeah. Um, I taught a paganism class and it was pretty great being able to teach Starhawk and yeah. Margaret Adler and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that was uh, just kind of there, like especially the more spiritual or goddess worshipy uh stuff when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, there was a whole lot of, you know, the white males and, you know, just naturally what I'm reading and in college. Uh, yeah, and especially Flannery O'Connor, I think short story wise. I mean, Hawthorne, Chekhov, um, Salinger, nine stories, but then that big like omnibus of the collected short stories of Flannery O'Connor was a yeah. was a real bible in like the mid '90s for me and so many other friends.
0: I just I'm looking up at my bookshelf. I see what, that the collected works, the collected stories of Flannery O'Connor, and I haven't read it yet. You're making me want to pull it down. Oh. And then uh,
1: so much good stuff in there.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, I you-
1: in the same senses. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, she in that same sense, though, as these stories that very much feel like parables, you know, and right. that um, they're very, um, she was, you know, her Catholicism was very important to her, um, even the very mystical end of it. And her stories often have those ambiguous endings that to her weren't particularly ambiguous. If you And if you really understood how she thought of her faith, um, they get less ambiguous, but they are left in that kind of parable sense where you go, it makes sense. But I don't entirely get it you know or like I get it but I can't explain it out loud what I get about it um yeah. so that was a pretty pretty big thing for me to read like modernist you know fiction that felt like the myth making I read in religious or um you know ancient myth texts <laughs>
0: your interest in gender stuff and then religion i'm wondering if you've ever read Jeanette winterson
1: oh um what have i read by her i do like her there's a she's got a character named jordan even in uh sexing the cherry Mm. um yeah she's really wonderful um she's she's certainly a myth maker also
0: um
1: yeah i need to certainly read more of her stuff but uh yeah she she does a lot of uh i feel like works in similar territory that i'm that I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. I would check out written on the body if you haven't.
1: Okay.
0: A lot of your work is very sexual.
1: And it's, you know, more so in this book than I feel like in other books. I mean, my yeah. my big novel uh, um, and when will wash away, there's, there's certainly that in there. I mean, the, one of the main characters um, is a um, sacred prostitute, um, you know, a sex worker that channels, you know, a goddess in what she does. So, so that is part of that. But, and I kind of think of these stories as either training for that book or somehow, kind of a thematic companion to that book but yes Crystal <laughs> yeah. is definitely a, Gristle, um, yeah. a text that runs in a sexual way
0: so i'm gonna cite your interview with uh jacob singer again but you talked about how you write about female sexual liberation and quote that's a space that patriarchy often fears and tries to control i told Jazz gonna put you on the spot a little bit that's so true. i'm wondering how is you um a cis male i'm assuming mm-hmm writing yeah yeah, writing female sexuality and liberation different from that idea of patriarchy trying to control the narrative
1: it's uh i mean it's not in some ways i mean in one way the stories themselves are the story itself and not me trying to say anything particular about the idea of female gender on a whole or trying to say anything universal about the female experience i don't have that you know i try my best to create characters that hopefully seem real and people can relate to without say thinking that I'm trying to speak for others, you know, speak for, and other with these stories. Like, so one of them, the, uh, the, the last story, the longest one, the 27 page story lessons from the good book. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's about pretty much a, a young teen girl finding a Bible that was her grandmother's and opening it up after the grandmother's passed. And there's this kind of sepia antique photograph of like, Early 20th century, maybe late 19th century pornography in the Bible, yeah. but stuck in the Song of Solomon. I, I think I saw a photo like that and was reading, rereading, or studying the Song of Songs of the time. And it just clicked, of What would it be like, like I said, with these other stories, for someone to find this? And I thought, Well, I was a 14 year old man. I mean, you know, and, and like, though my experience also isn't universal for all 14 year old men, I have an idea of what it would be like for me to find this, you know? And that seemed easy to write and it also seemed like i wouldn't be learning anything and so i thought well what would it be like for a woman a young girl to find this and so i interviewed my girlfriend at the time and i interviewed a few other female friends about their kind of coming of age experiences with i don't know menstruation body developing sexuality all those kind of things and so did my homework did the research um and also just kind of you know remembered growing up around you know my older sister, and then made this story, you know, in this kind of intricate prose, because I was also kind of in love with Faulkner at the time, as <laughs> if those sentences were any, weren't, you know, an indication already. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I made the story out of, um, you know, what I supposed, and based on talking to other people, what would happen for this particular character I created having that experience. And so I don't mean that cop out of, uh, it's specific, not universal, you know, um, I'm trying in those times to be as responsible as possible. And so with that particular story, yes, I interviewed people and I I created that character out of kind of a hodgepodge of like, um, I don't know, four or five other women I talked to. Um, yeah, the idea of, um, you know, female writers, I like uh, women writers writing their own stories. Of course, I think is extremely important. Um, I grew up with the weird female liberations that I first read though, were probably like Ibsen's Nora or, um, Tolstoy's like Anna Karenina, and you think of like, oh, these are stories of like the female hero as this rebellious, you know, breaking out of a mold, but it's still written by men, right? Yeah. I mean, they're still, and you go, okay, let's give these men a slight pat on the head for making that effort, you know. Um, and I feel like those characters are well-rounded; they're better female characters than Hemingway could write, you know, or or some others. But uh, it's still, you know, the the question of whether are they controlling the narrative or or they've letting someone else. and so i i respect that effort to try to create the other on a page and try to create a um a wide range of characters that's that's what i'm trying to do here at the same time you know uh and each one is its own particular reason for it again that one was this image who would it affect the most you know mm-hmm. would it be as profound on me or would it would be profound on someone who's kind of a a female who's a late bloomer who's um new to this kind of ideas and then the story kind of revealed something about herself to it dh lawrence i guess was in my head a lot also another you know male who you know, took great labors to try to create realistic female characters. Some of the greatest actually feelings I've gotten out of this book being out there is that uh, being approached by like female friends who've enjoyed that story in particular and brought up that they could relate in some way. Um, That's when I feel like I've, I've, I've done my job on some level.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll admit I was a little mad, (laughs) you know, when I'm like, why does he keep doing this? How does he know, you know, how does he know, you know, what a female sexual experience is, but the, lessons from the good book was very easy to relate to down to the tiniest details. So yeah. I guess you did do your homework.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate, it. I mean, that's, um, I interviewed Andre Debus the third once, and, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, his book, uh, house of sand and fog. And he said that, um, a Iranian woman once approached him and said that, you know, reading that book, the perspective from the Iranian female character that, um, she would assume that it was written by a female, you know, Iranian, um, and that, uh, it was, you know, the best thing he could hear is that, you know, <clears throat> she rela- and related. And I don't think that's, um, I think there's a level of, Every writer needs to try to be able to create a wide range of real characters. And we know people throughout our lives. You know, we listen to them. We, we relate to them. We have moments of compassion and empathy. And some of it is almost even journalistic. You know, you can create characters out of just noting how people act and what they say and find these tones. And, and hopefully you can put that on the page with, uh, without it being anything more than just that character. But that is, I guess, the, the big challenge of this work
0: yeah and i guess it kind of relates to i'm gonna i'm probably gonna butcher this word oroboros oroboros kind of a i'd say you know a beautiful sex scene but um then it turns into this like philosophical digression in the (laughs) you know the male partner's brain and Mm -hmm. i can relate to that too but um (laughs) talk about that a little bit. We'll kind of close out with that, I guess. Why is, or how is sex philosophical to you?
1: Well, kind of to come back to the, the overall gist of, of the book, I feel like uh, sex is deeply human, you know, and what could be more, you know, philosophical than that, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, we wouldn't be here without. It's part of, uh, part of us a um, biological imperative, you know, to, for, for some, you know, I know there, there are people who are asexual who have no interest or have no connection. And that's of course, totally fine. I mean, like, like anything. And, and part of this, this story is uh, kind of like when we talked about the the story gristle itself is that there's a, uh, anything can be ruminated on maybe to death, even, you know, um, anything can be blown out of proportion. There's that kind of uh, um, romanticism of, of, of being alive that uh, you know, you can, you know, just kind of take any little thing and just, you know, analyze it to death. Um, And so, yes, part of the action of this this story is, of course, um, a obviously, I think, first-person male, you know, protagonist directly addressing the reader uh, while performing oral sex on a woman. And, um, you know, his mind is, uh, he's doing a mechanical thing, you know, and um, his mind is just kind of going... Beyond or taking the action that he's doing and exploring it while also engaging in the action. Yeah, analyzing all of this, you know, this idea of, uh, Ouroboros, you know, this, the snake eating its tail, which Ouroboros literally means tail eater. Mm-hmm. Um, he's playing on that. He's taking that, that punning that into the sexual act he's doing. He's, uh, moving into philosophy and alchemy through that. Um, Mm. we would say on the surface is a a very sexual story but at the same time it's a story of maybe maybe a whole being you know that uh these physical things stimulate the mind the mind stimulates the physical my mother used to always tell me um my mother was you know, you, you read this, I guess, in that interview. It was, it was pretty sex positive, you know, and when yeah. I was a teenager. Um, she was a at 8 Atlanta, and we had a bowl of condoms and, you know, um, yeah. in our kitchen. And friends would actually drop off at my house to come by and grab condoms and, you know, just leave. They're, they're free. And so uh, she always said, you know, the the largest erogenous zone, the human body, is the brain.
0: I love um, that.
1: <laughs> so You know, I, I heard that a lot as a teenager. Yeah, so to me, they were kind of always inseparable. And it's it's strange, you know, there's a bit of that natural inclination towards shame. Oh no, I there's a sexual story in this collection. You know, people out in the world will will read this and know. I mean, I have two children. We know I've at least had sex twice, right? I mean, but this idea that that's somehow something that we cut off from the arts, you know, or something we cut off from philosophical discussion, something we cut off from intelligentsia or academia. It's compartmentalized. Um, even if it's not repressed or seen as dirty, it's not part of what's often considered the literary writing or things like that. Yeah. Um,
0: would you say that's a particularly American omission?
1: Certainly American. I mean, I, I would feel that, well, we're a country that was founded by, by Puritans, and then maybe it still runs through, or, and you wouldn't see as much of that in, in Europe, I guess. Um but yeah, it feels like that's something that just somehow gets excluded, and it's nice to to make a book that. And this isn't some experience that like I literally had, you know, like I'm like immediately after sex where I'm just <laughs> like, you wouldn't believe these thoughts I just had. So let's let's put this down. Though <laughs> so I I do remember hearing stories of like Jean Paul Sartre would get ideas when he's having sex with Simone, and he would just kind of hop off her and go write things down in the middle. Um, but I think it's also it's, his work um, better
0: been better have been good enough to. <laughs>
1: Uh, I hope my work excuses this behavior. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it would be nice to hear that she did that to him too. Right. I mean, she was, a. Uh, I mean, at this point, I think we're all reassessing and I, I find her, she was also someone I enjoyed a lot when I was a philosophy major in undergrad, um, that, you know, she was as equal to his brilliance, if not more brilliant. Um, I'd like to hear of her hopping off of him and mm-hmm. going and writing things down. Um, but yeah, this idea that, uh, you know, it's, um, for the fatty fleshiness of Gristle, you know, there would have to be this actual sexuality in it too. Yeah. I think I'm proud of that story. I think it works well as a story. I think it makes sense. I mean, I think it, it works on both kind of levels of um, intellectual and uh, I mean, it doesn't serve as like pornography, Um, um, but who knows? I mean, maybe it's, you know, some could read it and and find it arousing. I think uh, it's a good story that I'm, that I'm proud of. And it's nice to, to see in you know, a work alongside things that are even a Christmas story.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, love it. Cool. So, what's next for you? Are you working on anything now? I know you're teaching.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I always work on. I say I work on multiple books at once. That's mostly that I just have lots of books that I'm kind of picking at, and for one reason or another, something's moved to the to the front. And um, I had an idea last spring. Um, my father dies January 12th like the second week of the semester and I'd signed on to teach seven classes at three different colleges over the four and a half months of the semester uh-huh. and uh, it was actually um, pretty handy because uh, I had no time to grieve I was just busy and I was doing work and it was kind of kind of good in that sense and and I was so um, one of the schools was on the quarter system so it was two classes for two months and then two uh-huh. different ones and, my mind was kind of wonderfully running wild between the different stuff I was teaching. And, and then in May, I got this wonderful idea for this book. And I um, emailed a kind of a proposal to the publisher who did my book, uh, my shadow book that you also have. And, and they, they only do science fiction space boy books also out of Denver. Mm. And um, so I I interviewed, uh, I mean, emailed my publisher and said, Hey, I've got the idea of this book. And, and I hit him with this, Proposal and even had some lines and quotes from it, and it was like this one night kind of epiphany. And uh, he said, "Sure, yeah, we dig it. Here's a, we'll send you a contract." And so, um, I had all these hopes that I would finish it by the end of the summer. Um, and it's the most straightforward, like actual science fiction that I've ever written. And so, then I thought I'd be done with it by the end of 2019. And and I'm not done, but I'm I'm very close now. Yeah. Um, but I, I started realizing that along the way, you had to. Um, Answer a lot more questions than I expected to writing science fiction, but uh, it's a very kind of it's religious science fiction book, um, and uh, still a mystery detective story. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of research and um, um, uh, kind of uh, conceptual balls in the air at once uh, to make the book readable and make sense and enjoyable, but uh, a lot to kind of yoke and harness together. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's coming along well and I'm really loving it. Um, and I can't wait to kind of see it done and see it out there in the world. And every time I'm writing on it or even just thinking about it, um, it gets me excited, which, um, I mean, why else would we do this? Right.
0: Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for sitting down with me.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for this. I really, uh, appreciated those questions and, um, getting me to think about my own work in ways that I hadn't. And, um, I'm excited now to meet you and to to read this memoir. Whenever
0: oh yeah someday, it. <laughs> hopefully yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in again. You can buy Jordan A. Rothacker's works on Amazon.com. You can also check out his other work on his website, jordanrothacker.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please, please take a minute out of your day to leave a review and a rating. Help us go forth and prosper so we can continue this work over here at The Situation and the Story. Thanks again for tuning in.